Mark 8, 27 to 38. Jesus and his disciples went on to the villages around Caesarea, Philippi. On the way, he asked them, what do, you pe what do people say I am? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, one of the prophets. But what about you? He asked, what do you say I am? Or who do you say I am? Peter answered, you are the Christ. Jesus warned them not to tell anyone about him. He then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, chief priests and teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan, he said. You do not have in mind the things of God, but the things of men. Then he called the crowd to him along with his disciples and said, If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for a man to gain the whole world, yet forfeit his soul? Or what can a man give in exchange for his soul? If anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his Father's glory with the holy angels. Good evening, everybody. Uh, my name's Tim, and it's a real privilege to be able to join with you. On behalf of the Townsville team, I want to say thank you for having us this week. Thanks for... Um, inviting us and it's great to be here on the open church night tonight. I want to start by asking a question, what does it mean to be free? I wonder what freedom means for you. Financial freedom, maybe finally being free of school, freedom from your parents perhaps, uh, physical freedom, relational freedom. There's a, a philosopher called Immanuel Kant and he said, there's only one innate right and that's freedom. Do you feel free? Do you feel your freedom restricted? Are there things that threaten your freedom? In Australia at the moment, there's debates about uh, the extent of how much freedom we should have, freedom for, of religion, freedom of speech. What is it that limits our freedom? I suspect... There's lots of things, aren't there, that might limit and restrict us, that might take away our freedom. And I think for lots of people, if you ask them, they might add to that list God. Isn't the idea of God a threat to my freedom? The idea that there's someone up there who can tell me what to do, what I should think, what I shouldn't think, what's right and what's wrong. For Kant, this philosopher from the 18th century, his idea was all about the enlightenment, that as humans we've, we've reached enlightenment, that we're mature and we can now decide for ourselves, that we can think for ourselves about what's right and what's wrong. We no, no, no longer need God to tell us. And so for Kant, God's, the idea of God's authority of revelation, God telling us, it's not just kind of unnecessary or redundant, but it's offensive that God would still treat us like we're children. For Kant to be enlightened is to be free, to decide for ourselves 
what I will and won't do. And for him, that was the one innate right of humans. So what does Christianity have to say about freedom? As we talk about Jesus, is Jesus going to give us anything more than just more restriction, more rules and rituals, more restraint on my freedom? As you open the Bible, Jesus actually talked quite a bit about freedom. Jesus said he'd come to give us freedom. He's come to set us free. But I want us to see tonight that Jesus' answer of what freedom looks like is a surprising answer. It was surprising for the people who first heard it, and I think it's still surprising today. He didn't say what people expected him to say. But Jesus was like that. He was good at that. He didn't just go along with the crowd. He didn't say what people expected him to say. That's why lots of people loved listening to him. It's also why lots of people hated him. We're going to look at that passage that was read for us from Mark chapter 8. It'd be great to keep that open if you can. I want to start by making the point that Jesus had incredible freedom. As I talk to people uh, at university in Townsville and ask them what they think freedom is, my most common answer is that freedom is to do whatever I want. They, they've imbibed what Immanuel Kant taught, even though they've probably never heard of him. I want to do whatever I want, which straight away connects freedom with power, doesn't it? The power to do whatever I want. And I think we feel the powerlessness when we can't do whatever we want, don't we? When we're, and our freedom is restrained. Well, if there's one thing that is very clear from the historical evidence about Jesus, it's that Jesus had real power. I don't mean political power and influence, a very different kind of power. I'm not sure how much you've read of the historical primary documents about Jesus, books like the book of Mark we read. But even in this book, at the start of it, we hear Jesus heals his friend's mother-in-law and people in the town here and they bring all the sick people in the town to him and Jesus healed all of them. Word spread so much that Jesus couldn't even enter into the surrounding towns. Such were the crowds coming to meet him. He walked on water. His friends, he was in a boat with his friends, and they were caught in a huge storm. They were convinced they were going to drown. And Jesus stood up and said to the wind and the waves, Be still. And they obeyed him. And his friends turned to each other and said, Who is this man? Jesus had real power. I wonder what you'd do if you had power like that. Jesus came to the house of a little girl who was dead and he took her by the hand in front of her grieving parents and he said, get up. And she got up and rose from the dead. So Jesus says to his friends, who do people say that I am? It's because that's the question everyone's asking. Who is this man who has such obvious power? And they give some weird answers. You see in the passage there, sentence of verse number 28, they replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, still others, one of the prophets. John the Baptist was the most famous preacher of his generation just before Jesus arrived on the scene. 
And he'd preach that people needed to get ready for the kingdom of God. But by this point, John the Baptist is already dead. Some say Elijah. Now, Elijah, again, was one of the prophets who was famous but hundreds of years previous. And he similarly preached people needing to turn back for the coming kingdom of God. But by this period, Elijah had been dead for hundreds of years. Jesus' public life was such that even those who disagreed with him, even those who misunderstood him, knew there was something different about him. They didn't just say, oh, he must be a good teacher, he's a nice moral uh, instruction. They connected him with the prophets and with the coming of God's kingdom. Then Jesus turns to his friends and he says, well, what about you? Who do you say that I am? And his friends who've seen him up close, experienced his power, his authority, Peter speaks up for the group and he says, you are the Christ. The Christ, as many of you will know, is a title, title for God's great king. It's the the king that Elijah and John the Baptist and all the prophets had promised was coming. So Jesus' friends were convinced Jesus wasn't just a teacher. He wasn't just a prophet. He wasn't just a messenger of God. He was the message that all the messengers had talked about. He was God's great eternal king. He was a guy with obvious power, real authority from God himself over everything. That was the promise of the Christ. Surely if there was anyone who was free to do whatever they want, it's Jesus. Jesus had real power. What did Jesus do with his power? We'll see the next verse, verse 30. Jesus warned them not to tell anyone about him. Seems a strange response, doesn't it? It's not that Peter's got it wrong. If you've read through Mark's Gospel, from the very first line, Mark tells the readers Jesus is the Christ. We've actually known this from the very beginning. Peter's got it right, but Peter doesn't understand what it means that Jesus is the Christ. And so the next verse, Jesus began to teach them, verse 31, that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, chief priests and teachers of the law and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. Jesus has all this power and he says he's going to deliberately go and be arrested, suffer and die and then rise again. And Peter says that is crazy. Peter takes him aside and says you can't die. That's not what you do with power. That's not how you achieve freedom. But Jesus says to Peter, you don't understand. Well, actually, he says it in stronger language than that, doesn't he? He says, get behind me, Satan. For You don't have in mind the things of God, but the things of man. He calls Peter Satan because he's voicing the very things, the opinion of Satan to say, no, Jesus, you don't need to go to the cross. Jesus wants his friends to know that as he goes to die, it's not a mistake. It's not that he was overpowered. It's not that he was kind of surprised. It's not the unfortunate result of political powers beyond his control. This is what he chose. This is, in fact, the very plan of God. He wants his friends to know 
He wants us to know. He wants us to know why he's going to die. A couple of chapters later, in Mark chapter 10, Jesus describes his death as a ransom for many. A ransom is a price you pay to buy someone out of slavery. A price you pay to buy their freedom. Jesus is going to die to buy our freedom. Here's a very different picture of freedom, isn't it? First, we have Jesus, all the power, all the freedom, giving up his freedom for us. But secondly, we have the idea that that somehow we need to be ransomed, that we aren't free on our own. What is it that we need freeing from? Well, this is where you kind of get the background from the Bible. The Bible's worldview fundamentally is that God is the creator. The earth is his and everything in it, says one of the Psalms, and that includes me and that includes you. We are God's because he made us. So when we act as if freedom is found in choosing for ourselves what I'll do, how I'll think, what we're doing is actually stealing what rightly belongs to God. When we see God as a threat to our freedom, my life's mine to do what I want, we've believed a lie because it's not. We didn't create it. We don't own it. We don't sustain it. Life is a gift. We are totally and constantly dependent on God. God is not a threat to us. He's the very source of our life and everything else. Which is what makes our idea of freedom so dangerous. This idea that freedom is found in doing whatever I want. What we think is freedom is actually more like mutiny against our creator. As we claim what belongs to God, as we throw off God, it doesn't actually bring the fulfillment that we long for. Freedom from God doesn't bring life, it brings death. We hurt each other, we hurt ourselves, we make ourselves enemies of God and instead of having life, we get the life that we can create, which is death. We become slaves to our own desires, slaves to our egos, slaves to our fears, and ultimately, slaves to death. As God, in his right judgment, gives us what we ask for, life without him. We're from North Queensland, and so I thought I'd give you a sort of tropical illustration to help uh, ground this. It's like the scuba diver on the Great Barrier Reef, 30 metres down, deciding they'd long for the freedom that comes from throwing off the cumbersome scuba tank and this awkward uh, respirator that they have to breathe through, throwing them off and experiencing the freedom. Or like the skydiver who longs for the freedom of getting rid of this annoying backpack that someone made them wear. And they don't get freedom. They get death. Jesus' promise is that he can set us free that he can rescue us from being cut off from the God who loves us, that his death is a ransom that can pay for our freedom, can forgive us and bring us back into right relationship with God. 
It's not that if we try hard enough, we can fix it. Jesus' answer isn't that we need to gather together and work really hard, come to church, lots follow lots of rules. No, Jesus' answer is that he will die in our place. That his death is powerful to forgive you and bring you back into right relationship with God. Freedom found not in being free from God, but in being free in God. The freedom that is found in joyful submission to God. Jesus has all the power and he uses his power to rescue us. But thirdly we see Jesus actually models what that freedom looks like. He models what it looks like for us and calls us to enter into the same freedom that he has. So real freedom is not actually found in being free from all restraint. Jesus shows that as he chooses the restraint that drives him to the cross. As Jesus chooses the restraint of love, love for his father and love for us. Freedom's not found in no restraint. Freedom is found in knowing the right restraints. There's a uh, reality TV show a few years ago on SBS. They'd got a bunch of families, I suspect at the instigation of the parents, where there, there were uh, adolescents, young people in their, in their 30s who hadn't moved out of home. And so the show was gathering these families together and trying to help these young people to grow up and move out. I don't know how they get these families to sign up to these things, but they do. And so the show was getting all these young people in their 30s to move out of home and moving together into a share house that the show provided and we got to watch what happened. There was one young lady in her 30s who'd lived with her parents. She moved out and it was just a complete disaster. She was completely selfish. She was uh, thoughtless of the others around her in her house and in the end she gave up and moved back at home into home with her parents. And so they brought in the psychologist and they were interviewing them. There's one moment as the psychologist is interviewing her dad and trying to say to her dad, you actually need to say no to this request that she's made of her, of him. There's this great moment as the dad pauses and he says, I've never said no to my little girl. I always gave her what she wanted. And then they cut to the daughter and she says, oh, dad won't say no to me. He never does. Here was a young woman who got what she wanted. Her whole life she'd got what she wanted and the result was a selfish, spoiled brat who acted like an eight-year-old. She'd never grown up because she'd never learnt restraint. Because actually, if we get what we want, we don't always want what's best for us. Real restraint can be liberating when it matches what really is best for us. So what is best for us? Well, Jesus models it for us. Jesus is constrained not by his own selfish ambition, but by love. Love for his Father and love for us. Real freedom found in sacrificial love. And as you think about it, actually, love always works like that. Love always involves restraining myself for the sake of others. 
giving up what's best for me for what's best for you. And it gets more surprising. The end of our passage, in verse, not in Mark chapter 4, back in Mark chapter 8, verse 34, Jesus called the crowd to him along with his disciples and he said, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for me and for the gospel will save it. Jesus says true freedom for us is found in denying ourselves. Not in never denying yourself, not in doing whatever you want, but in the opposite of that, denying ourselves in submission to Jesus. It's a confronting thing to say, isn't it? Come after me, says Jesus, die to yourself. That's what he says by taking up your cross. Die to yourself and follow me. It sounds like the opposite of freedom. But Jesus is inviting us into a relationship of love. I wonder if you've ever had a friend fall in love. You've kind of watched them, the transformation that can happen as someone falls in love, the incredible change as they do sorts of things they would never have done before. All of a sudden they're interested in cricket or they're going to the ballet or showering every day, all sorts of amazing things that people do when they fall in love. I wonder if you've ever had that experience of watching your friend and thinking, oh my goodness, she has got him around her little finger. Because from the outside, true love can look like slavery, can't it? But from the inside, it is joyful sacrifice as you delight in loving the person you love. I said at the start that Jesus offers a surprising answer to the question of freedom. Dying to yourself doesn't sound like freedom. But that's what Christianity is all about. From the outside, it might look crazy. You might think it sounds like slavery. But we want you to know that from the inside, it tastes like heaven. The incredible joy of being fully known and deeply loved. And the joy of being able to love in return. To give up the foolishness of thinking life is found in serving myself and doing whatever I want and to taste the real joy of being restored into a right relationship with the God who made us and living life that pleases him. If you're new to church, new to thinking about Jesus, then this is a great place to be, a great place to come and keep understanding and thinking more about it. Maybe this Christmas you want to check out Jesus for yourself. Uh, the church have got a whole bunch of these little essential Jesuses, which is just one of the accounts of Jesus' life. And they're up the back just in the book stand. And they'd love you to take one this, uh, this Christmas. Have a read through for yourself as an adult. What did Jesus actually say? Maybe you could talk to the friend who invited you and ask them, what's it like for them to be loved by Jesus? What's it been like for them to deny themselves to serve Jesus? If you've been a Christian for a while, you might want to think about how you could explain that to your friends and neighbours this Christmas. Maybe today you know that you, know you need the freedom that only Jesus can offer. Maybe today you need to talk to God and tell him 
that you've been trying to find freedom by running away from him and that you want to turn back and find the freedom that found in Jesus' death in your place. Maybe you want to talk to God about that. Uh, If you do, we'd love to talk to you about that to help you do that. But right now, I'm going to pray and ask God to help us uh, respond well to what we've heard. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you know us. Thank you that you made us. Thank you that you actually know what's best for us. Lord, please help us to stop running away from you and to find freedom by turning back to you. Thank you that Jesus has died in our place. And we pray that we might accept that incredible offer of forgiveness and restored relationship this Christmas. Help us to taste the freedom of joyful submission to the God who loves us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.